6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Psalms, chapters 120 through 134. Okay, Psalm 131 is one of the shortest psalms to read of these 15. One of the shortest. But it's the shortest to read and the longest one to learn. We could sit here and memorize it in just a few moments. But it'll be the longest of all of them to learn. What do I mean by that? Well, let's take a look at it. Let's remember, this is written by David. Let's consider David's, he was a victorious warrior, clever general. Uh, he was a humble shepherd, the eighth son of a common citizen, and he became Israel's greatest king. Courageous soldier, clever tactician, sincere man of God. He expanded their boundaries. He subdued the Philistines to the west, the Syrians and Hadesar to the north, the Ammonites and Moabites to the east, the Edomites and the Amalekites to the south. Not a bad record. He also amassed all the wealth that Solomon would use to build the temple. He paid the bills in advance. And here, David is going to tell us the essentials of a life that glorifies God and accomplishes his work on the earth, God's work on the earth. This guy is going to give us his advice. He was a constructive administrator. Scripture says he gave judgment and justice to all the people. He organized a priesthood in 24 courses. He was a major poet, songwriter. He wrote these psalms, among others. And he's going to tell us the secret to his achievements before the Lord. Let's take a look at it. Psalm 131. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty. Neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. Surely I have behaved and quieted myself as a child that is weaned of his mother. My soul is even as a weaned child. Let Israel hope in the Lord from henceforth and forever. That's the secret. That's the secret. Not, not putting the Lord number one on a list of ten, but putting it on number one on a list of one. And that list does not include me. That's it. True humility is what it's talking about. All through the Psalms, Psalm 138 we'll encounter shortly. Though the Lord be high, yet hath he respect unto the lowly, but the proud he knoweth afar off. He's what? In Isaiah 57, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite one. See where God's values are. He values humility. In 1 Peter 5, verse 5, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you, be subject one to another and be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. In 1 Peter 3, 4, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price. Of great price. 
James 4.10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Matthew 11, 28, and the Lord Jesus himself said, come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden, I will rest you, is what it actually says. I'll give you rest, but literally, I will rest you. The Lord values humility. In fact, the flip side is also true. He hates pride. Consider those opposites. He hates pride because it was Satan's pride through which evil entered the world. Okay, Psalm 132, the royal presence. Song of Degrees, again. Lord, remember David and all his afflictions. Let's recall, by the way, that the ultimate son of David is not Solomon, but Jesus Christ, the greater son of David. And keep that in background as we read this. Lord, remember David and all his afflictions, how he swore unto the Lord and vowed unto the mighty God of Jacob, surely I will not come into the tabernacle of my house, nor go up into my bed. I will not give sleep to mine eyes or slumber to mine eyelids until I find out a place for the Lord and a habitation for the mighty God of Jacob. Lo, we heard of it at Ephrathah, which is an idiom for the region where Bethlehem is located. We found it in the fields of the wood. We will go into his tabernacles. We will worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, unto thy rest, thou and the ark of thy strength. Oh my goodness, here we go. The pilgrims are now at Jerusalem, and they've come to the temple where the mercy seat is on top of the ark of the covenant, and so they're at that place. They can't go in, obviously, only the high priest can, but they're there, and they're aware of it. Okay. Arise, O Lord, into thy rest, thou and the ark of thy strength. Now, this may have been the song that they sang when the ark was moved into the temple that Solomon built from the tent that it was previously uh, uh, held at, if you will, and so at the tabernacle. So the ark of thy strength, this is the only place in this series of 15 that the Ark is alluded to. And it's a very important issue, the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, the mercy seat, which is the, what we think of as the lid of that, represent God's throne. Because God is always spoken of as dwelling between, the, or, between or above, same word, between or above the cherubim. In Psalm 80 we saw it, and in Psalm 99, both Psalms open with that allusion. Speaking of God, as he that dwelleth above or between the cherubim. And we know from Numbers, the whole book of Numbers, that this ark with the mercy seat on top of it went before them through the wilderness whenever they moved. It would be the, the, the place where God was dwelling. When they crossed the Jordan, after they crossed the Jordan, it was temporarily at Bethel in Judges 20, then at Mizpah for a while, and then at Shiloh for a while. Then the, the wicked sons of Eli tried to use it as a good luck charm, and the Philistines captured it. But the Philistines were, suffered a, a series of judgments, and the Philistines themselves recognized that those judgments were because they had stolen the ark, and they were glad to send it back. <laughs> One of the most colorful chapters in the book of Judges. Or, yeah, and, uh, or I should say, uh, 1 Samuel, rather. 1 Samuel 4 through 5, 6, so on. And uh, so, now... When they got it back, it ultimately spends 20 years at the house of Abinadab in Kirith-Jerim in 1 Samuel 6. David tried to move it, but you all recall how he failed in his first attempt. So then it stayed at the house of Obed-Edom for about three months. 
He finally does properly bring it to Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 6. And uh, the tabernacle, even though the arks come up, the tabernacle and Moses' furniture is at Gibeon, according to 1 Chronicles 21. But ultimately, Solomon builds the temple and ultimately, of course, moves into the Holy of Holies of the temple. And I think it's going to be instructive for us to spend some focus on this. The, it, the Ark of the Covenant itself was made of wood covered with gold. The mercy seat was made of hammered gold. And God is always referred to as he that dwelleth between the cherubim. That's a mercy seat idiom. In fact, the Holy of Holies is defined as the location of the mercy seat. Yes, obviously the Ark of the Covenant is there, but it's interesting to check your text that the location of the Holy of Holies uh, is described as wherever the, the mercy seat is. That's in Leviticus, 6, Leviticus 16.2 and 1 Chronicles 28.1. Now, if you look at Exodus 25, where this is all being constructed, God is giving instructions, Thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. It's my understanding from the Ethiopians that the ark itself is deteriorating because it's wood covered with gold. But the mercy seat is of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And thou shalt make two cherubim of gold, and of beaten work shalt thou make them in the two ends of the mercy seat. So it's the mercy seat that has two cherubim, these winged creatures, at each end. Make one cherub at the one end, and the other cherub at the other end. Even of the mercy seat shall ye make the cherubim on the two ends thereof. Continues, and the cherubim shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the face of the cherubim be. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And there will I meet thee. God is going to meet them on that mercy seat. I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat. Notice the emphasis, the mercy seat in the scriptures always separate from the ark, even though it sits on top. From between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. In Numbers, we read, and when Moses was gone into the tabernacle congregation to speak with him, then he heard the voice of one speaking unto him from off the mercy seat that was upon the ark of testimony from between the two cherubim, and he spake unto him. God and Moses had audible conversations. We don't think of that. We often think of thought, you know, other more mystical kind. No, it's very simple. God is talking to him, and he talks to God audibly. That's the number seven, verse 89. We get to 2 Samuel 6. It says, David arose and went with all the people that were with him from the Baal of Judah, which is in the same place as Kiriath-Jerim, by the way, to bring up from thence the Ark of the Covenant, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubim. There's that, that idiom is always there. In Psalm 132, picking up our psalm now from all of that, let thy priests be clothed with righteousness. Let thy saints shout for joy. For thy servant David's sake, turn not away the face of thine anointed. The Lord hath sworn in truth unto David. He will not turn from it. Of the fruit of thy body will I set upon thy throne. It's interesting. There's going to be a bodily representative of the line of David sitting on the throne that's an interesting term, thy throne. What on earth is he talking about? 
there is the possibility, just a suggestion, the possibility that the throne that's in view is that mercy seat, is that very mercy seat. In Jeremiah 3, there are many people that disparage the idea that the Ethiopians are guarding the Ark of the Covenant. And I was among those, criticizing it because it's clear that the Ethiopians cling to a legend that is provably unbiblical. What everybody overlooks is that the, way, the legend by, that they believe it came down there happens to be untrue doesn't mean it didn't get down there by another path that's been obliterated in history. For other, but it is, it is in the Bible, by the way, in Second Chronicles 35. But I used to quote Jeremiah, like many, quote Jeremiah 3.16 in rebuttal of the so-called Ethiopian uh, uh, view. Because Jeremiah 3.16 says, It shall come to pass that when ye be multiplied and increased in the land, in those days, saith the Lord, they, they shall say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord, neither shall it come to mind, neither shall they remember it, neither shall they visit it, neither shall that be done anymore. I used to quote that, that obviously this theory that the Ark of the Covenant is around somewhere is irrelevant because Jeremiah 3.16 3, you know, throws those ideas into the trash can. I didn't read the next verse. You read the next verse, it looks like a change of subject, but maybe it's not. The next verse, verse 17 says, At that time... They shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall be gathered unto it. To the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem, neither shall they walk any more after the imagination of their evil heart. So suddenly the subject is the throne. Let's talk a little bit of the throne of the Lord. What's all that about? Isaiah 16.5 says, And in mercy shall the throne be established, and he shall sit upon it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking judgment and hasting righteousness. And the book of Amos says he's going to establish again the tabernacle of David. James quotes that in, the, in uh, Acts 15. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory. And the suggestion is possible that maybe that throne is the, is the mercy seat. The word for mercy seat in the Hebrew means the propitiation. And how appropriate is that that throne made His kingdom possible. How appropriate it would be that He rules from that throne. Zechariah 6 and speak on him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. Who is that? Nazarene. Yeah, the branch. And he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and shall be a priest upon his throne. See, the only known object in history that would be suitable for the throne of Christ is the mercy seat. And this suggests that the mercy seat may have a distinct place in biblical prophecy as it relates to Christ's second coming and where he will rule and reign on the earth in the Temple Mount. And there is a view, it's just a, it's just a conjecture, but it's an interesting one, that, uh, see, the Ethiopians believe that the relic that they've been guarding for 2,500 years is something they are destined to present to the Messiah when he rules on Zion. And their argument is, is that the Ark of the Covenant is breaking up. It's wood, it's, it's old, it's falling apart. It's in, it's in a mar marble carrier. But what's on top of it is hammered gold. It's permanent. And it's not the Ark of the Covenant that's the issue. It's the mercy seat. That's the view. 
It's interesting in Leviticus 16, 15, talking about Yom Kippur, it says, you shall then kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring his blood within the veil and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy, upon the mercy seat and in front of, in front of it. This is an instruction for, for the high priest at Yom Kippur that he's to sprinkle the blood between the cherubim, yes, but upon the mercy seat and in front of the mercy Why on front of the mercy seat? There's only other one other illusion here. And that's in, uh, see, it speaks of the priest sprinkling the blood in payment of the sins of the people. It was done once a year at Yom Kippur. And of course, Jesus Christ is, our, is the Lamb of God, the blood sacrifice for our sins. And the mercy seat is certainly suitable for his throne. Notice Ezekiel Speaking of the last part of Ezekiel, talks about the millennium and so forth. He said unto me, Son of man, the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever, and my holy name shall the house of Israel no more defile, neither they nor their kings by their whoredom or by the carcass of their kings in their high places. Interesting thing that here God is creating the image, at least, of him sitting on the throne in the Holy of Holies with the soles of his feet. That's what's in front if he's sitting on it. You with me? That's why the high priest is sprinkling on the seat and also in front, you see. Interesting. Two separate, the ark the mercy seat are two separate objects in Scripture. The ark, of course, is no longer the focus of worship in Jerusalem according to the prophecy in Jeremiah. It'll be replaced by the throne of the Lord as all nations shall be gathered to it. Could that be the mercy seat? I personally think so, but it's a conjecture. Let's continue with Psalm 132 to wrap it up. If thy children shall keep my covenant and, I, and my testimony that I shall teach them, their children shall also sit upon thy throne forevermore. For the Lord hath chosen Zion. He hath desired it for his habitation. This is my rest forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. Now, obviously, David's offspring did not keep God's commandment. That's why they were put out of their land and sent to Babylon. And uh, so, so even though the line of David had sinned, David himself, that did not destroy God's covenant with David. And that's why the New Testament opens with the genealogy, the, general book, of, the book of generation of Jesus Christ, to present him as Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is the son of David. That's the, way, that's the way the New Testament opens on that very issue. His habitation, here will I dwell where I've desired it. Okay. These verses are a specific prophecy to the second coming of Christ and his messianic reign. We see in this verse that God speaks of a temple. It speaks from his throne. And there'll be a place where he will dwell in the midst of his children for Israel forever. Those are strong words. Let's go on. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priests with salvation. And her saints shall shout aloud for joy. There will I make the horn of David, or the authority of David, to bud. I have ordained a lamp for mine anointed. His enemies will I clothe with shame. But upon himself shall his crown flourish. Okay, Psalm 133. This is a psalm of brotherhood. We sing this many times. Hinematov. If you've sung in one of the fellowships, Hinematov. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity. 
David was king of Judah and Benjamin and ruled in Hebron for seven and a half years. He inherited a divided nation, but God gave him a unified nation. He almost had a, a divided nation in a civil war, but God gave him a united nation. And this could have been the occasion for this psalm and for what it's worth. I love this quote that hangs in my wife's ministry. Now, we haven't found out the source of this. It's probably Augustine or St. Francis, somebody like that, but we haven't been able to confirm that. Speaking of unity, in the essentials, unity. Unity isn't to be desired of its own. We should have unity in the essentials. That's important. You don't park your beliefs at the door in order to be unified. There's a huge mistake by some. No, in the essentials, we have unity. In the non-essentials, we have liberty. We need to make those discernments. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, charity. As the quote goes, we, we, we would substitute the word agape. Now, I should attribute that probably to Augustine or St. Francis, but I haven't been able to confirm either one. It's obviously a, a classic quote that we picked up somewhere, and if anybody knows where it comes from, let me know, and I'll correct this before this gets published. Okay, verse 2. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, and went down to the skirts of his garments. Visualize Aaron, the high priest, getting anointed with oil. If it's going down his beard, it's going down over what else? His breastplate. The 12 tribes. It, that's just implied. As the dew of Hermon... And as the dew that descended from the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. Beautiful little psalm. Let's go to Psalm 134, which is the final one of this series of 15. The so-called songs of ascent. The final song of praise here. Behold, bless ye the Lord, all ye servants of the Lord, which by night stand in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. The Lord that made heaven and earth bless thee out of Zion. This is a great psalm and should be incorporated in our worship. The word thee in the third verse there, bless thee out of Zion, happens to be in the singular. And if you remember the famous benediction that closes number six, the Lord bless thee and keep thee and so forth, that also has it in the singular. It means that that blessing is targeted to each of us as individuals. They're not a collective for all you guys. No, no, it's for you individually. There's a blessing to each of us individually. The great climax to this series. Now, for the next two sessions, I encourage you to study carefully the remainder of the book of Psalms. That's from 135 to 150. There's some short ones and some long ones. And when you do that, I give you a challenge to see if you've done your homework. Try to explain Psalm 137, verse 9. It's the last verse of that psalm that when you read will mystify you. And uh, see, if you're gonna, see if, if you were confronted with a Bible class how you would deal with verse 9 of, verse, of, of uh, Psalm 137. We have two sessions left to finish the book of Psalms. I won't try to do all 150 next time, but most of them, so that the final session will finish at whatever we've missed, and then we'll have a review of the whole book in general, how it's been divided, just a refresher, 
for those that are going to bone up for the final exam. Okay, and there will be a final exam. Okay, a review of the entire series will be, uh, the, uh, these two subjects will be for the next two sessions. The rest of the Psalms, and then a review of the entire series. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. We feel like apologizing for going through it so superficially, so casually, so quickly. Yet, Father, we would just ask you through your Holy Spirit to anoint our times with your word, that you would have each of us, as we go through these one by one devotionally, that you would anoint our times together. We pray, Father, that you would reignite in each of us a new passion, a new hunger for your word, but also a deep, deep desire to chew the cud, to ruminate in your word. As the prophet said, thy words were found and I did eat them. Help us to digest these. We do pray, Father, that you would help each of us to grow in grace and knowledge of the greater son of David, our redeemer, our Goel, and that we each might grow in our effectiveness as stewards of the opportunities before us as we commit ourselves into your hands knowing that unless you build the house we labor in vain so draw us father into those projects those issues that you would have each of us undertake as we commit ourselves into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Psalms. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. Or you can call us on one 800 khouse one To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music